My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects podcast. Welcome to History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects, Episode 8, Joseph Smith's June 1830 Arrest Warrant. In order to understand the thrust behind Joseph's June 1830 Arrest Warrant, we need a little bit of context. So if you were to pick up a copy of Time Magazine, the April 1966 edition, you'd see a very iconic and confrontational cover. The cover of that Time Magazine is black, and in red words it reads, Is God Dead? If you happen to have read that issue, you know it references the works of a man named Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote about a madman that was running through the streets announcing that God was dead and that we had killed him. His point wasn't that we'd literally killed God, but that we didn't need him anymore. And his point was that we live in a world that is much less God-centered than the world of the 19th century Americans that we've been discussing in this episode. Joseph Smith's day and age was a time when everything they did was based on God and religion. And now in our day and age, it's compartmentalized. It's a part of our life that's compartmentalized with work, with family, with Netflix, and everything else. And it wasn't that way in the past. To give you an example, in 2017, when surveyed, only 23% of Americans who were polled responded that they actually attended church weekly. In 1830, that number was nearly 80%. So when Joseph starts claiming visions, revelations, and a new religion, it isn't just a truth claim to these early Americans, it's a challenge to their way of life, at least in the eyes of many of those who are angry with him. Now, let's pause. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you have a teenager in your neighborhood who claims to have seen God and Jesus Christ. He isn't actively proselyting this message, but other neighbors are taking interest and you hear that he's attempting to translate additional scripture and that he's possibly starting a church, what would your reaction be? Would you seek him out to hear his story? Would you just avoid him and think he was crazy? Or would you file a lawsuit against him in court claiming, as locals did against Joseph Smith, that he was disorderly and was setting the country in an uproar by preaching new scripture? That was the claim of the 1830 arrest warrant against Joseph Smith. Now, quick side note here. If an arrest warrant wasn't such a disruptive and life-changing thing, I would think this would be the type of claim that Joseph would have framed and hung over his fireplace. Setting the country in an uproar? That sounds like just the type of thing God's always asked of his prophets from the Bible. So, what happened with this 1830 arrest warrant And what role did it play in the history of the Mormon church? So we're now in June of 1830, just a little over a month after Joseph Smith organized the church. Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith had returned to Harmony, Pennsylvania. Joseph's wife, among other people, had desired to be baptized. And Joseph and Oliver were at Joseph Knight's farm to perform the ordinance, along with confirming them with the Holy Ghost. When they arrived at the stream to perform the baptisms, the Mormons found that people angry with them had torn down the dammed portion of the river so there wasn't enough water to baptize. 
Now, we don't know who actually did this, but I have a suspicion Emma's family was probably involved. They lived near the farm. They were unhappy with Joseph's religious work, and they didn't want her to marry him. Regardless of who it was, they rebuilt the dam and performed the baptisms. But as they were getting ready to perform the confirmations of the Holy Ghost, the local constable named Ebenezer Hatch arrived and arrested Joseph Smith and took him to town to be put on trial. Now, here is one of the interesting parts of this arrest warrant story. The trial was planned to be a sideshow. There was a conspiracy in place to bring Joseph harm and possibly stop the work. Now, the story goes that as the constable took Joseph into custody, they began to chat, and the constable had an immediate change of heart towards Joseph. He found that he liked Joseph and didn't believe all the claims this mob had made against him. So the conspiracy was that the constable was going to stop on the way into town by a clump of trees, and there Joseph would be set upon by the angry mob. But the constable's conscience got to him, and instead of stopping, he whipped the horses and rode on through. But of course, this story wouldn't be complete without a bit of drama. So, of course, they get a little ways ahead, and one of the wagon wheels promptly falls off. So they quickly worked to fix it and barely escaped the mob again and made their way into town, the town of South Bainbridge, where the trial was supposed to take place the following day. So Constable Hatch and Joseph check into their room, and at this point, Constable Hatch was so committed to Joseph that he gives Joseph the bed to the room, and he actually sleeps on the floor with his feet propped against the door and a loaded musket at his side in case the mob tried to come and take Joseph as he slept. So the trial begins the next day at 10 a.m. Joseph Knight arrives. He had hired a couple of local farmers who also moonlighted as attorneys. They weren't LDS, but had become lifelong friends of Joseph. Again, the charges were disorderly conduct and setting the country in an uproar by preaching the Book of Mormon. The case would last 14 hours and end at about midnight. About 12 witnesses testified against Joseph Smith, but in the end, the judge would rule in favor of Joseph, and he was found not guilty. So Joseph is acquitted, but this ordeal hasn't finished. The minute he leaves the courtroom, he's arrested by another constable. Now, we don't have his name, but he is immediately thrust into a wagon and taken to Colesville, where he is put on trial for similar charges the next day. So, 10 a.m. rolls around, and Joseph, who's had almost no sleep and just some bread to eat, is put back on trial. This time, he's apparently tried before three justices of the peace for almost the same charges, plus pretending to receive angelic visitations and casting out a devil. This last charge of casting out a devil might just be the first miracle of healing that Joseph would perform. So, Newell Knight from whom Joseph had supposedly cast out the devil, is called to the stand, and the questions went something like this. Is it true that Joseph Smith cast the devil out of you? Knight answered, No, sir, it was the power of God. It was responded, Well, did you see the devil? Yes, said Knight. Will you please tell the court what the devil looks like? Let me first ask a question of you. Do you believe in spiritual things not visible to the human eye? asked Knight. No, sir, of course not. I'm a lawyer. Well then, said Knight, it would be no good to describe the devil to you, 
for such things are only spiritually discerned, responded Knight. This trial would go on for 18 hours, with some 30 to 40 witnesses testifying against Joseph Smith. They literally scoured the countryside to round up anyone with a grievance against Joseph. The trial apparently went all night, ending about 4 a.m. the following day. As in the prior case, nothing was proven, and again Joseph was found not guilty. But it still wasn't over. A mob had assembled at this point and was waiting outside, ready to administer their own rough justice to Joseph. So everybody involved retired to the back room and they quickly formulated a plan. One attorney and the constable, who was now repentant and sorry for what he did to Joseph, went out the front to engage the mob. The other attorney opened the rear window to let Joseph and Oliver out into the night with the judge's permission. They fled through the woods, running 15 miles home, where they arrived exhausted. Now, despite Joseph's success in court, sadly, Emma Hale's family believed all the lies about Joseph. In the end, they disowned both Joseph and Emma, and that would be the last time in this life Emma would see her parents. So, it's been said that in the world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. But for Joseph Smith, it could have been death, taxes, and legal troubles. Dan H. Wells, who was a constable and later a justice of the peace in Nauvoo, who then emigrated to Utah to become attorney general over the state of Deseret, later became a legislator and a second and third mayor of Salt Lake City. He had considerable experience with the law and lawmen, and he wrote, I have known legal men all my life, and Joseph Smith was the best lawyer I have ever known. Why would he make such a statement about uneducated Joseph Smith? Because this 1830 arrest warrant would symbolize the beginning of a lot of legal troubles for Joseph Smith and the church. Joseph's ministry as a Mormon prophet will last only 14 years. Records indicate that during the course of that time, he was involved in over 200 lawsuits. This makes about 14 cases per year or a little over one suit per month. Unfortunately, although Joseph would become well acquainted with the law and almost an expert, he won't be able to stop the schemes of mobs working with the law, which will ultimately lead to his murder. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Joseph Smith's June 1830 arrest warrant. Again, if you have questions or comments, you can email me directly at joehomc historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. And again, if you're listening on iTunes, if you could rate and review the show, it would mean a lot. Thanks again.